Good morning, Generations Church. How is everybody doing? I'm concerned about our families and I'm concerned about our own spiritual life. I find that um, the pandemic can be difficult. What, what I assume is that uh, some of us in the church are maybe doing better than, other, uh, better than ever. Uh, and some of us, maybe most of us are doing about the same. We figured out how to navigate the pandemic. But I'm afraid that there might be a few of us who are really struggling with this. And as the body of Christ, I want to urge us to be reaching out to one another in compassion. And importantly, let us pray for one another. I mentioned already that in the book of Mark, Jesus prays three times. And at each moment that he prayed, it was because he was facing a ferocious challenge. If Jesus needed prayer, how much more do you and I need prayer? We need to be praying for ourselves, and we need to be praying for the health of the body of Christ. I'm also concerned about our spiritual lives. I find it ironic that we have more time, but maybe we spend less time in our devotional lives. I know before the pandemic, I was always busy, and I'd say, oh, if I only had more time, I could spend more time uh, in prayer, seeking God, reading the Bible, but now, with more time, I'm afraid sometimes I might be spending less time with the Father. I want to encourage us to spend more time. I did give one suggestion of a way that you might want to go about coming before God, and that is to spend time in the Gospel of Mark. And one way to do that that I strongly recommend is looking at these videos by Max McLean. There are 16 videos on YouTube, one video for each chapter. So each video only takes four, five, maybe eight or 10 minutes to finish. So you don't need a lot of time, but work your way through all 16 of them. And they are powerful. Last time I asked for some response from you. And I got one that is wonderful wonderful from Justin Chang. And he talks about that uh, after my recommendation, he and his sister grabbed some In-N-Out burgers and he watched all the videos. And he mentions that he had studied Mark as part of his campus fellowship, but in the entire semester, he didn't get as much out of it as he did from seeing and hearing the way that Max McLean presents the gospel of Mark. He says, the impression the videos made is difficult to precisely describe. The only comparison I can make is when I first heard scenes from Shakespeare. <laughs> okay, only Justin will make this reference to Shakespeare, but I love it. I can only compare it to when uh, I first heard the scenes of Shakespeare performed in class. I saw how much detail I had been missing. Facial expressions, stage directions, the energy of shifting scenes and conversations, etc. All of which drew me deeper and deeper in as I heard it live. The effect with Mark was even stronger. Again, I encourage you, spend time with God. Cultivate your spiritual life during this time. Pray for 
one another. We continue this morning on with our series. Uh, We move into Mark chapter 2. And so what is Jesus up to? And I think what we see today is that Jesus wants to clarify and verify that he is the Christ and that he even has the authority to forgive sin. So let us go ahead and look at our scripture reading. We are reading Mark 2, 1 through 12, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Setting up the action. So a few days later, when Jesus entered. So this is after this series of events, this series of healings, and people are now coming to him in droves. And so a few days later, he returned. He again entered Capernaum, and the people heard that he had come home. This probably means that he returned to the home of Peter, where Peter lived with his wife and his wife's mother. So they've gone back there. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left. Last time it said that when they were at Peter's house, the whole town showed up. But now it says that they gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left. Again, this is Peter talking about his house. And he's probably just marvels that this all happened to him. And so Mark now tells us the story again that he heard Peter tell over and over again. So they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to him. The idea here is that it was 
so packed that you couldn't even squeeze your way through. So if you were to bring a man on a pallet for healing, you'd get to the doorway and you would see no possible path. You can't push people aside because it is completely packed. Some men do arrive. (laughs) They do want to get to Jesus. Some men came. Some men. Let me think about that for a moment. Who is your some men? Who is your some men? What I mean is, who is the person who first brought you to Jesus? Who is your David? My David is my cousin, whose name is David. So I call him uh, Cousin David. (laughs) David is the one, my cousin, is the one who, when he became a new Christian, he moved to Evanston in Illinois, and he lived near my home where I was several years younger to several years younger than him and he began as a brand new christian he learned how to share the gospel and he began to share with me and I loved my cousin David. I worshiped, I idolized my older cousin David, but I never registered and I never showed any particular interest in Christianity, but he just faithfully and patiently shared with me. When I asked questions, he answered my questions, and he continued to pray year after year after year before I finally came to Christ. He continually brought me before Jesus. Who is your David? Who brought you before Jesus? That's who some men. That's who these men were. You, probably, most of us, you probably have a David or several Davids who brought you before Jesus. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, and I love this, you just see them with this hot anticipation carrying this man and their friend. He's going to be healed because they believe, they have faith that Jesus can do that. And they arrive at the doorway and apparently the crowds are packed outside the door so you can't even get to the door. And they look through, they probably push a few people and a few, oh, what is it? And when they they move, what they realize, there's just too much flesh. There's too many bodies and there's nothing to do. So, and this is common in a Palestinian home, is they step back and they see a staircase. The staircase is common. And so they walk up the staircase. But now what can they do? And I love their persistence. They don't give up. It reminds me of a story. (laughs) This story reminds me of a story I heard of a determined young man who wanted to get a job and he saw a job offer in the newspaper and the next morning he arrived early and he found out he was number 78 on the line for a single job. And as the first couple people were having their interviews and he was standing on the line, he thought, what can I do? 
and he had an idea. (laughs) He walked to the front of the line and said to the interviewers, he said, excuse me, I am number 78 back in the line. And I just want to suggest, please don't hire anybody until you get at least to number 78. And he politely walked back to his place in line. That's the kind of persistence that these guys had. Since they could not get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof. And I want you to imagine what this would mean. Mostly people probably had no idea that they'd pushed, you know, uh, at the doorway and couldn't get in. A few people might have been bumped by them or, or pushed by them, but they didn't know. But at some point, they would become aware maybe of the scratching on the roof. And at some point, the, the, the dust would begin to filter down. And you'd, you'd what, what? And at some point, the first, the first hand would shoot through the hole. Uh, apparently, these roofs were made of uh, grass, clay, uh, tiles, and uh, boards. And so at some point, a hand would pop through, and then it would open. And so this didn't happen in an instant. This is probably three minutes, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. And the dust is falling, and the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally, <laughs> finally, they see a pallet <laughs> being lowered probably on fishing rope, something that was uh, readily available to them. And finally, they see a pallet being dropped. And at first, you probably can't see what it is, but this pallet is slowly dropped. <laughs> I love Mark. The drama, the action is just so fun. So the, the pallet is slowly lowering, and at some point, it would get low enough, and you can see on top of it, the paralyzed man. And you look up and I think you can see the gleam in the eyes of the four men with tremendous faith lowering the man before Jesus. Now, you wonder how Jesus might respond to that because a preacher doesn't particularly like to be interrupted. So you might wonder how he would respond. So they lowered, uh, let's finish this. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now, how does Jesus respond? When Jesus saw their faith, he looked up and saw their faith and he looked to the paralyzed man. He said to the paralyzed man, Son. Son is a beautiful term. It's a term of endearment. It's a term you can use with children, but it's also a term that can be used with an adult. It's a term that suggests closeness and compassion. So this man, the paralytic, is lowered, and he looks him in the eye, and he says, Son, Your sins are forgiven. This forgiveness, what does it mean to hear those powerful words? Your sins are forgiven. I think we can remember the amazing story of the prodigal son. It is a story that I love to tell. It is a story that I love to remember. Recall that there's a rich a Jewish man, and he has two 
sons, an older son and a younger son. And the younger son, as he grows to adulthood, decides he wants to take his share of the inheritance and leave home. So he goes to his father and he tells his father, Father, I would like to leave home. I want my share of the inheritance now and I want to leave. His father loved the son and he didn't want the son to leave, but he agreed and he gave his inheritance to the son. And Jesus, as he tells the story, he says the son took the money and he went off to a faraway land. And in the faraway land, the younger son began to squander the money. He spent it on fun and dancing and drinking and carousing and parting. He spent the money and it lasted a long time because the father had given him a lot of money and he enjoyed his inheritance. But then it says, several years later, the money ran out. He found out all his new friends weren't really friends at all. They all disappeared when the money and the fun was used up. And then a terrific drought hit the land. And he couldn't find job. He couldn't find anything. All he could find, all he could find was feeding pigs in a pigsty. Recall that pigs are ritually unclean for a Jewish person, but he had no choice. He took the job as a pig keeper. And we can imagine him as he is in the pigsty, living in the dirt and the mud up to his neck, in mud and filth, and shame and humiliation. And he has a thought. You know what? Even my father's hired servants live better than this. And so he stood up and decided he would go home. Let me interrupt our story for a moment and think about the drama of this scene. Back home, how do you envision the father? I like to envision him being something like my father-in-law. My father-in-law was a traditional Chinese man, and he was very dignified. I recall the first time I took a picture of him. He was furious at me because I shot the picture from his knees up to the over the top of his head, and he said, no, I want my feet in the picture. He Everything needed to be appropriate for him. Imagine your, if you have a Chinese father or a Chinese grandfather, imagine him as you imagine this Jewish father, I, I've, I understand Jewish and Chinese culture are quite similar. And so this idea of dignity is extremely important, especially for the elder of the family. And so here is this Jewish father at home. His son has disappeared 
for years. And you can imagine him in his doorway, dignified with his long flowing robes one day. And he's looking out over the fields. And as he looks out, he sees his younger son. If it was your Chinese grandfather, your Chinese father-in-law, or whoever it is you're imagining, if it was him, how do you expect him to respond? I think of my father-in-law. I think he might let the son come back, but I also think that he's going to wait for the son to come over. He's going to wait for the son to bow. He's going to wait for the son to beg for forgiveness at the very least. But what does Jesus say this Jewish father does in the story? What the Bible says is the first thing he did is he rolled up his robes. My father-in-law would never expose his bare legs in public. It's undignified. Why did he bare his legs? Because he wanted to sprint to his son. My father-in-law would never run in public. It's not dignified. So we see this father, this dignified Jewish father, sprinting across the field. And what happens when he arrives at his son? His son immediately drops to his knees and says, Father, I am unworthy to be your son. Father, please accept me as your hired hand. And as he is saying those words, the father will have nothing to do with it. He says, Arise, you are my son. You were dead, and now you are alive. That is forgiveness. You don't deserve anything, but the Father pulls you from the dirt and looks you in the eye and says, you are my son. You are forgiven. That's forgiveness. Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And the teachers, apparently the teachers have been dispatched from Jerusalem. So there are teachers, Pharisees, scribes, they are there and they're watching and they're looking for Jesus to say something. And he says, your sons are forgiven. And that that's the trigger. Now they know there's something wrong with this. And so what do they say? This confrontation emerges immediately. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Aha. Actually, they are right. Only God can forgive sins. So who is this guy? Who is Jesus? The Old Testament teaches that blasphemy, presuming to be God, requires a death penalty. This is a serious sin. Immediately, immediately, 
Jesus knew in his spirit. He knew from his insides. He could sense it, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. So he might have read it on their faces. We're not sure, but he knew. He could look and he could know what they were thinking. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Jesus has claimed that he is able to forgive their sin. As they begin to murmur, as they begin to complain, as they begin to think of bringing charges against Jesus, Jesus immediately responds and says, now, any... Actually, I think this is quite kind of humorous too. Of course, anybody can say your sins are forgiving, but can you actually produce any proof that that's possible? Jesus knows they're thinking those things, but he wants to verify. He wants to prove. He wants them to know who he is. But I want you to know that the Son of Man The Messiah has authority on earth to forgive sins. This idea of knowing something is to know without a shadow of a doubt. He wants to demonstrate in a way that there can be no mistake that he has authority over sin. He has authority, the authority of God because he is God to forgive the paralytic. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, and what does he say? He says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. If you are the disciples, if you're crowded into that packed room, and you've watched this drama of the dirt falling, and then the pallet coming down, and then Jesus speaking, and then he says to the man, Get up. What do you expect to happen? He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Jesus wanted to verify, to certify that he is in fact the Messiah. And he has the power to restore people who are sick and he has the power and the authority to forgive sin. And the man heard the words and believed him and immediately he stood up and he walked out. When Jesus tells us that, when Jesus tells you that you are forgiven, do you take him at his word? And do you stand up and walk out as a man, as a woman who is forgiven, a child of God? We are going to take 
communion in a few moments. And my prayer is that as we come before the table, as we come to the supper, as we receive the bread, and as we receive the wine, yet again, as we receive that, I pray that when Jesus promises us that his blood forgives us, that his blood makes us new, I pray that we will believe it and that we will get up from our time of communion and we will be renewed people, that we will be a people that is dedicated to one another, generations, church, dedicated to pray for one another, to reach out and to love one another. Let's prepare our hearts in prayer for the communion. Lord, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for this message. We ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to each of us. Have mercy on us. Lord, we neglect you. We neglect your word. Lord, I pray for each person of Generations Church, that we would rededicate ourselves to seeking you, that we would rededicate ourselves to seeking your face, that we would rededicate ourselves to knowing your word, to reading your word, to bathing in your word and allowing it to refresh us and to transform us. And Lord, I pray that each of us would dedicate ourselves to reach out and to love somebody, to be a David to somebody else, to bring somebody else before Jesus. To carry them into the presence of the Lord who can forgive them. Lord, we thank you for all you have done for us. We pray with thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.